0: Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jilkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, my self-lovers. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you're giving yourself the gift of self-love. Now, if you don't know what the gift of self-love is, it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's now available in stores and online worldwide. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting to say that because I've been working on this book for years. I poured my heart and soul into it, compiling everything that I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is, this book is a combination of me sharing my life story and everything that's helped me on this self-love journey, including body acceptance, and it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So every single thing that I share, you can put into practice right away. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. I'm holding it right here. It's right in front of me, and it's absolutely gorgeous, not to toot my own horn or anything, but we've nailed the design on this one. It makes such a wonderful gift both for yourself and for your loved ones. Perhaps you have a friend that could really use this message and that, you know, needs a little push, loving push in the right direction, and I think that this book is just a great gift. Hence, the gift of self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to com slash book. I'm certain that the tools I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, that's maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Hello, my self-lovers. Today, I have such a cool guest for you that I'm just so absolutely honored to have interviewed. Elise Resch, whose name might sound familiar because she is the co-author of Intuitive Eating, A Revolutionary Program That Works. This is the OG intuitive eating book that was published back in 1995, and now they recently released their fourth edition. So you know of Elise, at least you know of her work. I am pretty for sure about that. And in this conversation, we dive into so many nuances of intuitive eating, including the behind the scenes of publishing the book in the first place back in the 90s, which back then this this whole movement was unheard of, and also how intuitive eating has evolved over the years and where it's at today. We also talk about criticisms of intuitive eating and why they're just so not valid <laughs> by any measure. So if you or someone you know has been thinking about, I don't know, intuitive eating isn't going to work for me because then I'll just eat forever and never ever stop. That's not true. Listen to this episode. And towards the end, we talk about how to instill intuitive eating in teenagers. So this was obviously a selfish question because my little sister just turned 13 and I want to make sure to set a good example for her, but Elise gives some gold onto how to tap into a teenager's psychology to make intuitive eating something that they're actually really excited to embrace. So this conversation is rich. It's in depth. I just connected with Elise so much and I hope you enjoy it. And before we dive in, let me quickly read to you Elisa's bio because she does so much incredible work. So it's definitely worth taking note as to the books that she's published and where she's contributed. So Rush, Resch, MSRDN, which stands for Master's of Science degree. The RDN means a registered dietitian nutritionist. And she is also a CEDRD supervisor for those seeking certification. So she also trains other dietitians. She is also a FIAEDUP. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it stands for Fellow of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals and FADA, which is Fellow of the American Dietetic Association and F-A-N-D, which is short for Fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I know that's a lot of letters, but basically, Elise is a nutrition therapist in private practice in Beverly Hills, California, with over 39 years of experience specializing in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. She's the co-author of Intuitive Eating, which is now in its fourth edition, The Intuitive Eating Workbook, and The Intuitive Eating Card Deck, 50 Bite-Sized Ways to Make Peace with Food, which is coming this year in 2021. Elise is also the author of the Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens and the Intuitive Eating Journal, your guided journey for nourishing a healthy relationship with food, which is also in 2021, release date, and a chapter contributor to the Handbook of Positive Body Image and Embodiment. So Elise does a lot of writing, and I highly recommend You read some, if not all of it. She has published journal articles, print articles, and blog posts. She does regular speaking engagements, podcasts, and extensive media interviews. Her work has been profiled on NPR, CNN, KABC, NBC, KTTV, Los Angeles Times, AP Press, KFI Radio, the New York Times, USA Today, and the Huffington Post, among others. Elise is nationally known for her work in helping patients break free from diet culture through intuitive eating. Her philosophy embraces the goal of developing body liberation with the belief that all bodies deserve dignity and reconnecting with one's internal wisdom about eating. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Elise Rush. Hi, Elise. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Mary. I'm looking forward to it. So take us back to the early 90s. I know you are OG in this space, and I would say even one of the pioneers of this movement. I'm curious as to like how you and your co-author, Evelyn, even landed on the idea of intuitive eating. Why did you decide to co-author this book? And did you think that it would have the decades-long impact that it does?
1: That's an interesting question. I think each of us was on a path toward it before we came together and collaborated to write this book. I'll jump back to that, but in terms of did I think it would you know, get to this point. We had three publishers who wanted to publish it and they were all really enthusiastic about it. And so I just kind of naively, it was my first book, thought, okay, it's going to be a real success. I don't think I I was uh, realistic in the fact that a lot of books are published and they're not all successes. So I've been very grateful that it has maintained and evolved over all these years. So going back to how it all started, when I was doing my traineeship to be an RD, I worked in a facility for developmentally disabled kids and it was a multidisciplinary approach to treatment. It was wonderful. I got the opportunity to work with all different health disciplines including psychology including, you know, these not only the psychologists but the social workers and psychiatrists and I was just blown away by learning from them along with my nutrition supervisor and all the other health disciplines that were represented. And I loved it. It was a year traineeship and then I worked there. It was uh, through Children's Hospital Los Angeles and I worked there for a while afterwards and really thought my career was going to be based on working with kids with developmental disabilities. I was running the feeding clinic for these kids, talking with the parents. It just spoke to me. And then I realized I wanted to go into private practice uh, and you know, do my own thing. And that's where I thought I'd be headed, except it didn't happen that way. You know, I just didn't get the referrals for that. I started getting referrals from mostly from doctors who were sending their patients to me for what we would call now medical nutrition therapy, but it was lose weight. That's what they were telling me. Get your clients to lose weight so that they'll resolve their cholesterol issues, their blood sugar issues. It hasn't really changed today. There's such a deep-seated belief that weight is connected with health. But in any case, we can get into that later. So I didn't know what to do because I certainly did not want to work in that arena, probably because I had had an eating disorder prior to that. And it was diet mentality, you know, diet and binge. And I knew that didn't work. And the whole focus on weight. I mean, I had healed that. I'd gone to therapy. I didn't want to be in that world. But what do you do? You know, you're getting these referrals, and the only thing i had been taught to do—I went to graduate school in the um, in the '70s, <laughs> a long time ago, finished in, in 1980, and the only thing we were taught to do as dietitians was to help people fix their <laughs> fix their medical diagnoses with weight control and give them a meal plan and tell them how many exchanges using the diabetic exchange system but it never felt right. I'm a very intuitive person and I always had like a pain in my gut that I'm not doing the right thing. And one day there was, I think it was the epitome of knowing this is the wrong thing. There was a young woman who came in and I'd given her her meal plan. Others were following them beautifully because they wanted to please me. And she came back to me. She said, I can't do it. I'm binging. I, I, I just can't do it. And I didn't know what to tell her. I just didn't understand what the real problem was. So move forward a bit, and I started reading some of the very early literature on non-diet approach. And two is an anti-diet, but this was non-diet. And one of the first books I read was um, Fat is a Feminist Issue by Susie Orbach, who is a British psychoanalyst. I think she was Princess Dye's therapist. Princess Di, who had had an eating disorder, and I read uh, *Overcoming Overeating* by Jane Hirschman and Carol Munter, and some of Janine Roth, who was a lay person who wrote non-diet. And I'm reading this, and I'm blown away because the common thread among them all was we shouldn't be telling people what to eat, and basically all foods need to be, you know, legalized. And here I was, a dietitian, master science degree in nutrition knowing all the nutrient you know components of all the different foods how can i tell people to eat whatever they want but the psychology part of it from my training at children's from my own therapy really was the you know the force that that helped me overcome that fear and realize that it's because of the psychological underpinnings of dieting that it harms people it's toxic and so Long story short, I started to write a book, and I was just thinking recently that I, I, I was going to going to call it the Tao of eating, Taoism, T-A-O, it's about, you know, kind of trusting and letting the process happen, and that's not, of course, what the title ended up being. So how did Evelyn and I get together? I had, and still do, which I haven't been in for a while, my office in Beverly Hills, and Evelyn lives an hour away, and she had a couple of patients in my area. And so she was in my office one day a week. She used some space in my office and we, you know, would chat from now, you know, from time to time And she one day was looking a little, when I happened to see her in the hall, she looked a little upset about something. And I said, Evelyn, you know, what's the matter? And she said, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist and she doesn't know how to write. And it was this moment of, you know, like the light bulb went off and I thought, well, she's trying to write something with a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist, but I'm pretty, you know, well-versed psychologically. And I just said, I'll write it with you. It was just my inspiration to get my word out and maybe it was going to come out more easily when I was, you know, teaming with somebody else. And so we started talking and our thoughts were very similar. And so we just, you know, partnered on it and we divided, we came up with our ten principles early on. Part of that, and I don't think we've ever said this in a podcast, is that publishers like to have a number, you know, like seven, 10, 12, eight, whatever the number is, it seems to appeal to people. So we went, okay, 10 principles. And we, you know, drew up these 10 principles and then divided them up so that each of us had specific areas that were more dear to our hearts. And we started writing chapters and we would meet often and collaborate and write and edit and rewrite and edit. And finally, we sent out the proposal. And as I said, we had three different publishers really interested in it. So that's the beginning. I don't know if that answers your
0: question. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that sounds so divinely aligned. And I won't lie, the co-author question was a selfish question. (laughs) As being an author and writer, I told my partner that I was interviewing you and told him about your book and how you co-authored. And he's like, how does one decide to co-author? And I'm like, well, I'm sure their works were Aligned, but I will ask her tomorrow. (laughs) So, yeah, going back to your college years, how did you decide to go into like nutrition and dietetics? Because what I've noticed with the people I've worked with and even people who follow me, like every so often, if somebody writes me a message, I'll like click on their profile. I see in their bios a lot of times that they are a nutrition major. So it seems like a lot of people with disordered eating kind of gravitate towards that, whether it's like a personal thing or they're trying to learn more about it or they're seeking. Uh, did you find that that was your experience early on?
1: Not in college because my eating problems didn't happen until my late 20s. So in college, I majored in sociology, minored in English, and had known all my life that I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. So I took all the teaching courses and I became an elementary school teacher after I graduated. I I taught for about four years. and. Didn't really think, this is a long time ago, Mary, the second wave of feminism was just breaking through. And in that era, my friends and I, we were like going to work for a while, have a few kids and never have to work again, kind of (laughs) a very different person than I am today. So the four years of teaching were wonderful. I loved my kids. I taught second grade. I mostly loved my second graders. The fourth graders were a little more difficult, different school, different city. But in any case, I, I had my son. And then it was like, okay, I need to do something else. But to be very personal, I had planned to have another child. And my eating disorder that had erupted at that point actually prevented me from getting pregnant again because I was starving myself and I was binging and I was starving and I had had no problem getting pregnant with my son. But it just... And nobody knew. No, I went to so many doctors and nobody doc, no doctor said to me, are you eating enough? Have you been losing weight? I... It wasn't until I got into graduate school that I realized that even a a small loss of weight can cause infertility. So something for your listeners to hear. In any case, at that point, okay, I'm not going to have another child. What am I going to do with my life? And I did not want to go back to teaching. I put all my child energy into my own child. And I was sitting around with a group of friends at a play group where our kids were playing in the other room. And I was saying, I need to do something with my life. Should I become a lawyer? What should I do? And I was very interested in nutrition because my husband at the time, my son's father and his family were very orthorexic. I mean I wouldn't have known that phrase then, but it was all about nutrition in this family. So it just seemed like the natural place to go. And I said, Oh, okay, I'll become a nutritionist. And within a couple of months I was enrolled in graduate school. It was just this decision that seemed right. I didn't know what I was gonna do with it. This was, you know, obviously years prior to that traineeship. All I could imagine, I had a visualization of sitting in an office with somebody across from me talking about eating. And this is what answers your question. I think at that point, it was because of my own eating disorder that I was driven to want to keep talking about eating and, you know, without really understanding the psychology of what was going on. So it was pretty much halfway through graduate school that I started therapy and started to, you know, really do some healing. Although I did ask one of my therapists, whether she thought I had an eating problem. And she asked me if I threw up and I said, no. And she said, "Oh, you look fine. No worries. And there was no understanding at the time. can't really blame her so much because even when I was in graduate school, there was no, no information about eating disorders. One day, maybe in a developmental nutrition class where they showed one picture of one young woman with anorexia and
0: that was it. First of all, you're so relatable. I mean, I haven't had children, and I've not nearly as accomplished at a early on in life, and all these things. But the way you speak and the way you describe the journey, like, I feel like you're in my head because when you said I was with my girlfriends and I was like, I need to do something with my life, like those are exact thoughts that I've had, and I'm sure so many, so many people have had. And even just like you said about at the time, we thought we were going to work a little, have a baby, and then stay home. And yeah it's it's also interesting that not that much has changed <laughs> talking to some people. I mean, it feels like a lot has changed for us and for women and women who are feminists identify as feminists and are interested in that work. but in terms of like the general public and that kind of stuff like it's it still feels very much that way
1: yeah um there's still a lot of patriarchal oppression. <laughs>
0: yes white supremacist depression there's a lot going mm-hmm. on yeah i won't get there's it. so much going on it seems like you just the journey has aligned so well like even between sociology mm-hmm. and english and teaching mm-hmm. and now you have workbooks for teens which uh-huh. you know and the nutrition like it all just like came together for you what do you like attribute that to
1: well, it's, it's interesting that you're saying that because just before I started graduate school in nutrition, I was writing poetry. I was studying women's literature uh, at UCLA Extension, not for any credential. I was just, I wanted to, my mind needed to be active. And I thought, should I get a master's degree in English? You know, this was even before I sat with those women about what am I going to do? And I finally realized that I had interest in both science and literature, and I thought, no, I'm going to leave literature for my avocation. I mean, I read a lot. I wrote po- poetry a lot. Um, I don't want to ruin that, I thought. I'm just going to go into science and, you know, do my work through that.
0: My degree is economics, um, and I do this. Uh And people are like, well, why'd you major in economics? And I'm like, well, I love economics and somehow in, in ways that seem surprising to others, but for example, behavioral economics Mm -hmm. and capitalism and all those forces that come into play and also diet culture and oppression of fat phobia, like it all kind of relates. But I don't think people get that until they're in the nuances of that and until they actually like accept and embrace that your journey doesn't have to be conventional. So I think you're just like a prime example of that, that you weren't like, nutrition, write a book about nutrition and then do it forever, you know? And so for me, that is very inspiring.
1: Like, oh, I'm so glad about that. And and yes, and I think you take in your wide you know range of knowledge and study, and you put it into, just what you're saying, into this work. As you were saying earlier about my books, I mean, sure. I got to do all my writing and still be within this profession. You know, how wonderful is that? Yeah,
0: exactly. Why do you think that anti-diet culture, body acceptance and intuitive eating has gained popularity over the recent years. And, you know, the past few decades since you wrote the book, like, do you think it was very timely, where people just fed up and looking for this? Or like, what what happened?
1: Well, I think up until the last few years, it was people who just happened to be sick of dieting and would, you know, look for books that were not about dieting. And it, it Obviously, it kept selling, it kept growing, because we wouldn't have gotten all the additions. But it's exploded in the last few years. And I thought about this a lot, and and I have thought about this a lot. And I think it's a convergence of a number of things. And I might get a little bit political right now, but I think the four years of the presidency that we had prior to now... Was so offensive to women, and converging with the Me Too movement and the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the place at which women are starting to say, "No, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what size I should be or what I should eat." And and I think the vehicle of social media, which can be very damaging but can also be very helpful, I think you know the social media was able to bring this message out and. You know, one person touches another person, follows another person, and people start looking at it. And so I think all those things came together, and that's why. I just, you know, nobody wants to be told what is right or how their body should look or, you know. Yeah. So breaking it. It's a feminist piece. It's a huge feminist. Yeah,
0: do you think that, like, in history books or when we take a sociology class in the future, like, is this going to be considered, like, fourth-ish wave feminism? Oh, yeah. I think so. I do yeah. think so. And wouldn't it be nice if they mentioned intuitive eating and health at every side <laughs> I was just gonna say I hope that they write that in well, the little text
1: I hope so I hope I live long enough to be able to read that, <laughs>
0: that I, I see it I mean the impact and the ripple effect it would it, it's historical it is historical
1: Well I had a teenage uh, client a boy client um, I don't know maybe uh, within the last year who said to me, huh, this is kind of like a a movement, like a revolution. I said, yeah, it is, it actually is. Because his family was very diet culture oriented and put a lot of pressure on him about weight loss and it was made him, it was a very painful thing for him and for me to give him the message that he didn't have to think about that and, and he could get some satisfaction and joy out of eating and listen to his body and trust it. It was mind boggling for him. And he did say it's a revolution. I think it is.
0: It is. And I think for me, at least it helps. I'm an Enneagram too, which is like the helper. So for me, it really matters to feel like I'm also helping other people. Like I can't just have it about me. And so when somebody presented it to me that way that, you know, it's a revolution, it's a movement by breaking free for yourself. You're also breaking free for others. Like that keeps me motivated.
1: So I want to say something in relation to that, Mary, that's so spot on. I am Jewish, and within my religion, there's this concept value called tikkun olam, and it basically means one of the goals is to heal the world. And the belief is, is that you help one person heal, and that person touches another person, and little by little, you're healing the world. And so that is a big driving force of my work as well.
0: I just got chills all over my body. I'm Jewish too, and I've been recently reading about that concept because Really? Yeah, my, my family is refugees from the former USSR, so we weren't allowed to be Jewish. So I'm just now learning these wow. things. I'm, I'm also
1: yeah. Russian. My father was born in Russia.
0: and <laughs> Oh my <laughs> and God, I've chills. Yes, and I've visited there. I've seen all uh, five of the different countries that used to uh, compose the Soviet Union. So. Yeah, it's amazing. We just went to Russia right before the pandemic for my first time because wow. my dad lives there. It was crazy. I mean, they still have like portraits of Stalin in their restaurants. Oh, really? Like it's um, a whole different world out there.
1: Well, we never got to When I went on this tour, this was in 1988. We weren't allowed out on the streets. We didn't get to go into restaurants. We had to eat all of our meals in the hotel. We picked up by mm. the bus and taken to places to see. And so I didn't get to see any
0: yeah, in 1988 that was right
1: before the fall apart yes that was right before so it was still the soviet wow. union and i got to go to moscow and it was then leningrad and tbilisi georgia and yerevan armenia and baku azerbaijan places that incredibly full of history places and i felt yes. really lucky that i had that chance then
0: Wow, that is fascinating. I didn't know that about you. I feel like so connected. Um, But I I digress a little. You mentioned that you and Evelyn are on your fourth edition of Intuitive Mm -hmm. Eating, the main book. Um, It just came out earlier this year, I believe. Last year. Last year, 2020. Gosh, everything's a blur. (laughs) How has Intuitive Eating evolved over the years what are we on like 25 over 25 years now like both in the movement and the book
1: yeah it's 26 years since the first edition came out in fact we were going to call that edition the 25th anniversary edition but our publisher didn't like that and just wanted us to call it the fourth edition which was fine as well the first thing I want to say is that we all need to have self-compassion for many things including we as professionals need to give us ourselves some grace for what we didn't know when we started. Even you starting young now, you will evolve and things will change in your mind. And so early on, the book was never, obviously, it was never a diet book, it was a non-diet book. But there was a mention of, you know, as an intuitive eater, you will find your natural weight. So there was a focus on weight, not that that natural weight was necessarily going to be less or you know, we, we didn't predict what it was going to going to be, but it put too much of a focus on weight. And that was the first edition. And the second edition really was the identical first edition with just a chapter tagged on that I wrote on eating disorders. So not until the third edition was there really any true evolution in thinking. And when we wrote the third edition, which came out in 2012, boy, we thought we were very present and, you know, had changed everything in the book that would would mention anything about weight. And when we were rereading it and writing the fourth edition, we were stunned and a little embarrassed about some of the things that were still in that book. So I will say to your audience, just read the fourth edition, because it is, you know, it is the most evolved. And we have really, we've gone into more of the social justice issues, the weight stigma issues, the fat phobia issues, the um, justice and oppression that comes from diet culture. And so, you know, that's a big evolution from the last book, and hoping that we really got every reference out. Uh, you know, and I think there's probably still, you know, more things that could be changed, because we wrote this book before, Either of us, I believe, had read Fearing the Black Body, Mm -hmm. The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina Strings. And I think had we been writing the book, let's say, last year, you know, it takes two years to get a book out, usually, we would have added more about the racial history. So yeah, a lot of things have changed.
0: I feel that I was even looking at the intuitive section of my book, intuitive eating section of my book, where I referenced your work. And I noticed in one spot, I used the word overeat. And I'm like, how did that mm-hmm. get in there? Like, I, that's not what I believe. I don't know what happened between editing so much, like my brain is mush. And I literally have a note in my planner to reach out to my publisher to fix it on the reprint. Because there's still certain things that I catch and we all learn and grow. But... Yeah, it's
1: important. Uh, yeah, that goes to self-compassion and not beating yourself up. We are not perfect beings. So much of the work of intuitive eating is letting go of that perfectionist viewpoint and understanding that we can only know what we know when we know it. Hmm. You know, Sure, that word I'm sure was in early editions of intuitive eating all over the place about overeating. Uh, I don't know whether your listeners know this, but for the fourth edition, uh, two of the chapters had, or two of the principles, I should say, got name changes. Mm-hmm. the chapter on emotions is now called cope with your emotions with kindness and it used to be cope with your emotions without using food and we looked at that when we were writing mm-hmm. this it was like wow using is such a harsh term and sh- there's lots of times when we want to comfort ourselves with food and lots of times when we want to eat more than our bodies tell us we need but maybe we need it for emotional reasons and that's all part of intuitive eating yeah. so that was a big shift and then the chapter on movement, I've always called it movement and we just change it from exercise, feel the difference to movement, feel the difference. Mm -hmm. I noticed that. And and, and reordered a couple of the chapters of the principles, I should Mm -hmm. say. I work a lot with satisfaction as one of the primary principles that I present to people. So that got moved up a bit in my own personal books, my uh, intuitive reading workbook for teens and my new intuitive reading journal that just came out last week. I put satisfaction up, I think, as a second as a second chapter. And what's the first? The first is always reject the diet mentality. Mm. And that could even be changed at some point to reject diet culture because that term wasn't around until recently. It has to be the first that we talk about because you cannot really learn to trust your body, tune into your body. If you have in the back of your mind, yeah, this thing doesn't work. Yeah, there's that diet. I mean, there's always new diets popping up. That I'll try. So there has to be a place within someone where they realize that they can never diet again, where dieting is toxic, where dieting is just harmful to them, their physical health, their mental health, you know, every part of them to their soul. And so at this Mm -hmm. point where they will never go on another diet. And that's why it's always the first chapter. Just as gentle nutrition is always the last chapter because it almost doesn't even need to be talked about because by the time someone is fully trusting of themselves, everything works out just fine.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I remember exactly where I was and when I was, when I was listening, because I read uh, intuitive eating on audible. When I was listening to the first chapter of reject the diet mentality, I was still living in Canada, I just left like a really bad relationship. And I was all alone in this apartment with just this like styrofoam pad I would sleep on. And anyways, I remember getting ready for work or school and having intuitive eating in my earphones. And it was the chapter on reject the diet mentality. And the words that like downloaded into me, the ones that I lived by from then moment on is, no matter what, you will not go back to dieting. It was like always no matter what. And at the time I was really struggling with binge eating. And I would tell myself like, no matter what, you're not going to restrict and that was just like my little mantra that came from that chapter.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. So interesting. Even before I wrote the book, the original book, did co-wrote the original book, I had this <laughs> I'd forgotten about this, Mary. I had this little sheet I would give out to clients. And I called it the eating emergency. I don't know why I called it that. But it was for people who were binging and they didn't know what to do with that. And one of the guidelines on that sheet was no matter how much you may eat in your binge, you must go back to feeding your body, you know, the next day kind of thing, if that's happening at night, and do not restrict. And I didn't even realize then, it was more of an intuitive thing. I didn't realize how scientifically accurate that was
0: and psychologically yeah. accurate. Yeah, That saved my life, truly, because I knew that, obviously, I couldn't stop the binging because it was happening of what felt like outside of my control. and obviously for a reason for survival Mm -hmm. but i knew the the restricting part like i could vow to eat breakfast the next morning i could i could vow to like do these little things even though it was like so uncomfortable so scary it was like so many tears and it got me through so i love that that's the first principle obviously the biggest one You mentioned satisfaction and out of the 10 principles of intuitive eating, which ones do you find are the most challenging and what's your advice for them?
1: No, I think that respect the body becomes the most challenging because, and and I'll say more about it in a moment, but I think that people are open for the most part, my four favorite words, for the most part. To getting more satisfaction in eating. People who have been dieting really never felt any satisfaction. They were always deprived of what they wanted to eat or as much as they wanted to eat and worrying about whether they were doing it right and worrying about losing weight. So you know, for the most part, people appreciate satisfaction. And I use that as a lens into hunger and fullness. And they start to work those issues out. And making peace with food is terrifying for them, but they start to do it. And they realize that through the whole process of habituation, which is the greater the stimulus, the less the response, the more they have of something without any kind of forbiddenness to it. It kind of takes its place and there's no binging. And they're even, yes, scared as they are, they're even willing to look at how, and I'll use diet culture terms, how diet culture's voice is really a, a food police voice and how they internalize that. And they work on their own internal food police and internal judgments and heal that. And if they get brave enough and I can help them get brave, they speak up to the people around them. When you get to the respect the body part, okay, they can do all the nice things for their bodies. They can have great self-care, but the hardest thing for people is to be in a place where they understand that their bodies are programmed genetically, DNA programmed to be a certain size and shape. They understand their height is programmed. They never tried to change their height. Maybe in ancient China they did, but not, you know, not now. And just that coming to terms with this is my body and I want to do, okay, I can say respectful things, I can do respectful things, but do I really believe that this is a body that is wonderful in the here and now body I have and, and be not hiding some agenda of trying to change the body? I think that's the hardest part.
0: Mm, yeah, sometimes that secrecy is so like deeply rooted where you're like, just a little bit.
1: And <laughs> well, that's why that first edition of intuitive eating is so problematic, because just in that message of find your, you know, your natural weight or whatever your weight is meant to be. For some people, they think, well, if I do intuitive eating, then I'll be able to lose the weight I need to lose. And so they're still holding on to the diet culture belief that there's supposed to be a certain way to be acceptable. So yeah, it's hard. I've been in private practice. Next year will be 40 years. I think that the hardest thing that people have to do through this process is the body image part. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say was the one that's most challenging.
0: Yeah, I recently, well, about a year ago, I read Sonia Renee's Taylor, The Body is Not an Apology.
1: Amazing. Uh-huh.
0: That helped me so much with the respect the body because it's also about so many other kinds of bodies. And I actually didn't realize how much work I had to do there until... I read hers, her book, because it's, yeah, like you said, it's one, it's one thing when it's about your own, but it's another thing when you take in like marginalization and oppression and just that, that big picture, that's a little more political.
1: I don't know if you know this or your listeners know this, but she also wrote a wonderful book for young girls called Celebrate Your Body and its changes too. And I've had this book for a long time. It's about girls going into puberty, the ultimate puberty book for girls And just recently, I went, oh my goodness, this is by Sonia Renee Taylor as well. She's great. She's just wonderful.
0: Wow. I did not know that. That is wonderful. All these book recommendations, by the way, will be in the show notes, everyone. So don't worry about writing all those down. They will be linked for you. Elise, I have a question for you. Okay. I hope it's not too touchy. But I'm wondering, what's the... like? loudest most prominent criticism you get on intuitive eating whether that's like you know personally or even academically yes. i'm sure that's that's been around and like how do you deal with that well i'm going to tell you a little story that was
1: so painful to me and it addresses your question many years ago i think it was Actually, during the time that Evelyn and I were writing the third edition, I was signing up for a conference and I noticed in the brochure that someone was speaking on intuitive eating. And I was like, whoa, somebody's talking about intuitive eating. So I contacted this person and said, hi, I'm Elise Resch. I'm one of the co-authors of intuitive eating. I'm going to be at this conference. I hear you're talking about intuitive eating. And the person said, oh, yes, this is going to be great. You know, please come. Yada, yada. So the night before the talk, I had a flash drive with slides. And I thought, I'll take a look at them beforehand. And I saw that this person, I'm not using the gender, this person was bashing intuitive eating. And I was shocked. And the next morning, I went to the the room where the talk was. It was standing room only. People were so interested in intuitive eating. And the person brought me in and said, um, I'll just use a, they brought me in and said, oh, sit here, got a chair for me, and introduced me as one of the esteemed authors of Intuitive Eating. And the first slide was a picture of the second edition, actually, with Evelyn and me on there. And then they began to bash Intuitive Eating. And what their bashing came from was, they said they looked in the dictionary, and the dictionary." Uh, They looked in the dictionary for the definition of intuition, and it said instinct. And then they said, well, we all know that we can't eat by instinct alone. And interestingly, as the talk went on toward the end, I think this person was uh, promoting a book of their own. In any case, I left that room. I was so upset. So many of my colleagues and friends came up to me, Are you okay, Elise? And I, I was really, I was really shook by it. And I called Evelyn, and ironically, she was going to be on the panel with the same person the following week. And it was very upsetting. So that's actually what led to the true definition of intuitive eating, which is the dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. Instinct is one part of intuitive eating. That's the survival brain, the reptilian brain that the dinosaurs had. That's what gets us to eat. Like when we're in primal hunger and haven't eaten for many hours, chemicals like neuropeptide Y are released, hormones are released to get us to eat. And what we think of as binging and being out of control is truly survival. So that's one part of it. But we also have emotions. We have the emotional layer of the brain, which is the limbic or the mammalian brain. And our emotions, one way or the other, can affect our hunger, our fullness. And luckily, we have the cognitive part of our brains, the neocortex, which is what differentiates us as humans from cats and dogs who are also emotional but can't talk the way we do. So... I think the biggest criticism is yeah, just tell me I can eat whatever I want. And my instinct's just going to tell me to eat, you know, hot fudge Sundays every day or French fries every day. And, and the truth is, it's far more complex. It's far more nuanced. Intuitive eating takes into consideration all parts of our brains. So that I would say is one of them. The other is the people who are saying, but you can't lose weight on intuitive eating. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the whole point. This is not a diet, and this is the goal of it is not weight loss. That's another criticism. And yes, and that part about making peace with food is connected to that. Well, my tongue just tells me I want this or that. I'm going to never stop eating. So, also, one last thing within the eating disorder community, treatment community, there is much more openness today to intuitive eating than there was years ago. And there was just this kind of standard, well, you can't use intuitive eating with treating somebody with anorexia. And again, it's nuanced, it's complex. And sure, you can't tell someone who isn't getting accurate hunger and fullness signals, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, (laughs) which by the way, is not intuitive eating like the hunger fullness diet. That's not what intuitive eating is either. So there's many other things can be worked on and thought about within the realm of intuitive
0: eating and treatment. It's interesting how that criticism is also so internalized because that's the number one thing that I hear is like, well, if I if I try to eat intuitively, then I'm just going to eat whatever I want and never ever stop and once you try it, you realize that that's so far from the truth. But a lot of people are even scared to just just try it and I'm so sorry you went through that that the biggest insult is when somebody like takes something that is so nuanced, so complex, so just like just personal, not just to you as an author and creator of this, but even to each and every human who practices it and just dumbs it down to like the stupidest thing that is not even the truth. Like that's gross. I'm so grossed out.
1: It's reductionist thinking and it's co-opting of intuitive eating. And there's also a lot of celebrities that co-opt. Co-opt intuitive eating. You heard about the uh, intuitive fasting scandal. Did you hear about yep. that? <laughs> yeah, I, I intuitively fast when I'm sleeping. <laughs> you know, I'm not eating while I'm sleeping. That's intuitive, but oh my goodness. Anyway, I won't go on on that one.
0: Wow. How do you, like, even personally, how do you work through that? Well, Evelyn and I get very
1: upset, and we think about lawyers, and we think about suing, and then we realize that these people have far more (laughs) resources and money than we do, and it's not going to go anywhere. So we write about it, we talk about it, we help people understand Well, that really underneath it all is they're all very threatened by intuitive eating because it has become so well accepted and it goes against their, you know, their diet mentality, their diet culture. And so they try to pull it in as if they're promoting intuitive eating so that they don't lose their place in, you know, out there in the media.
0: Yeah, I truly think that intuitive eating is going to be one of those things. That's the first thing that's taught in like a nutrition class or in a dietetics program. And that it's going to really disrupt diet culture. And of course, <laughs> when it's a 70 plus billion dollar industry, a lot of people are going to be upset about that. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely.
0: Which I think a lot of criticism, at least for me personally, it almost like further proves the point. Right.
1: That's what I'm saying. Right. Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't yeah. it? You know, they're so threatened by it that they've got to criticize it. If they really embraced it, they wouldn't be threatened. They wouldn't be criticizing. So.
0: Yeah. And they'd probably be a lot less hangry. (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) Um, I, another selfish question. I have a little sister. Uh She is almost 13 at Mm -hmm. the time of this recording, but by the time this comes out, she'll be a little teenager. How can I instill intuitive eating into her given that she's at an age where diet culture is just so omnipresent? I mean, Most of her time, especially with the pandemic, a lot of her time was spent on TikTok. And now that she's back in school, they're, you know, eighth grade girls. I remember what that was like. Sometimes I find that, I don't know, sometimes it's that effect of like, if I say something or if I give advice, (laughs) a teenager does like the opposite. So what's a way to instill that into, into young ones?
1: It's a very important question and it is what the foundation of my intuitive eating workbook for teens is. I help teens understand that they're in an appropriate developmental stage of finding their autonomy and their independence and their, you know, being their own person and that when they are buying into everything that they're fed through some of the social media outlets, they're being told what to do and that actually if they accept that, then they're going against their own trust of their own wisdom and that intuitive eating is autonomous it's telling them that you have the wisdom within you nobody's going to tell you how to eat or what to eat or how much to eat or what your body should look like and so think about it for a moment think about do you want to be just part of the crowd that you know just the sheep that are being led down you know at the farm i'm being told where to go and and or do you want to be your own person? And I have found that so many of the teens I work with are really interested in the fact that, yeah, it's okay for them to be a little rebellious. It's okay for them to be, you know, independent and let's rebel. Let's put the rebellion into the arena of not buying into diet culture because they're trying to control you. Don't you want to be your own person? And then on top of it, I am just stunned and delighted by the fact that so many of the teens I work with are very open to social justice issues. It's the one thing that I can, well, that other piece, of course, but the one other thing that helps me get through to them is looking at the oppression of diet culture. And they pretty much always say, yeah, I want to change the world. Yeah, I I don't want, you know, I don't want people to be oppressed. All people are, you know, equal okay, then why are we judging people of different sizes and shapes and intuitive eating embraces? You can be whoever you are and be wonderful for who you are. So,
0: wow. No, I'm so impressed. It's almost like it's it's almost easier when you phrase it that way to instead in teens because you kind of tap into their innate desire to individuate a little bit and that autonomy that they're seeking and that rebellious nature and combined with how, especially this, this generation is so aware to social justice concerns and they want to be a part of movements that you just like combine those two things. And it's, I feel like it's always easier than with adults who have had certain things ingrained for decades.
1: I agree, wow, I agree. And so in the first chapter of the team workbook, I talked about autonomy and this was this was my hook to try to get them in in that first chapter. So
0: I love that. Well, I'm gonna hook my sister into it and I'm adding that to cart right now. <laughs> I hope she'll she'll have some some time and space to do that work this summer, especially before she goes into eighth grade. Elise, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I did or any final message you wanna? leave to our listeners? Well, I think there is one
1: thing as I think about it. I've been writing pretty steadily for seven years now, and I'm exhausted. (laughs) And I think it's time for me now to be more in a consulting role for other young writers. There's a book coming out in January called, I think it's Raising an Intuitive Eater. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have the title exactly, but it's by Sumner Brooks and Amy Severson. And I got the privilege of writing the foreword for it. And I consulted with them during the writing. And it excites me so much that they get to write. This is directed toward parents about how to raise their kids as intuitive eaters, And I'm so glad they wrote it and I didn't have to. And so I think that it's time to be educating younger people to carry you know, the torch on this.
0: Mm, I love that. And I might take you up on that offer as I grow in this work. (laughs) Wonderful. Where can we find you, learn from you and connect with you? So I have my own personal website, which is eliseresch.com opposed
1: to the intuitive eating website, which is intuitiveeating.org that has a lot of wonderful information about the over 140 studies that validate intuitive eating as an evidence-based process. My website's a little different. It's very personal. It talks about the history of intuitive eating, my history. I have lots of links to um, podcasts I've done and papers I've written. And I have a section called Words of Wisdom, things I've gleaned over all of my years that I want to offer to people and even a list of books I recommend. So that's one place. I'm on Instagram, Elise Rash, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook. It's all under my name. But truthfully, I don't spend a lot of time on social media. I'd rather be reading books and working on my jigsaw puzzles that are my new obsession. (laughs) (laughs) And you can also, if you have a question, I will do my best to answer through my email, which is eliseresh at gmail.com.
0: That's so generous of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and words of wisdom. I'm going to be looking at your words of wisdom on your website too. I'm just so excited for this interview to come out and for everybody to get like in that nuances of the origins of intuitive eating and how this this great movement, historic movement came to be. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I love talking with you. You're just a wonderful young woman. I really appreciate that. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening. One last thing before we farewell, if you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a short review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Your feedback helps the show so, so much. I absolutely love hearing from you. And as somebody whose love language is words of affirmation, your words mean the world to me. Just go to the Apple Podcasts app and scroll all the way down until you see the review section. And from there, you can just tap the star thing and leave your own review. You. thank you so much for supporting me and this greater message of self-love for all also feel free to send this episode to a friend and spread the gift of self-love and speaking of the gift of self-love make sure you pick up my book which is available in stores and online worldwide just head to slash book and you'll find all the links to give yourself the gift of self-love i love you all so so much and i will talk to you next time Mwah.